Well, you guys, what we're doing here in this class for this, over the summer is we're preparing for a day that's coming in, I should know the date now, but I don't, uh, it's either October or November, where we're going to have the opportunity for folks to be confirmed. Uh, that's just an opportunity for you to say, yeah, I lock it in. I'm a Christian. I want to make a public declaration of that if you've never done that. And so we'll do that in the fall. But prior to that, we wanted to make sure that you just have the chance to like kind of ground, you know, get grounded in all these basic things. So some of the stuff that we're talking about over the course of the summer will be familiar to you, things that we've done before. But I imagine some of it will have a different twist to it. Um, and so this week, well, let me, let, let's review first. So do you guys remember, we did this, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe it was three weeks ago. We asked the question, what is the gospel? And we kind of built this kind of like three-column answer where we break down the question of what's the gospel to, what's the actual declaration, what's the news, and then how did this news come to be? Like how was this accomplished? And then what are the implications, both in terms of what does it offer and what does it demand, right? So review, what is the gospel? Column one, what's the, what happened? What's the news, you guys? Jesus is king. That's right. Jesus is king or Jesus became king, if you want to be a little more pointed about it, right? That the great news is that Jesus became king. John, you want to add to that? Wait, okay, I couldn't hear that. Do it again. Because of what Jesus did, you don't have to go to hell. Okay, yeah, so, well, so that, but that's not, yes, but you got to wait, you got to, we're going to, we're going to, we're getting there, okay? So the good news is that Jesus became king. How was this accomplished? How did he become king? <laughs> Through his death and resurrection, right? And it was on the cross that he not only atoned for sin, but he also defeated our enemy, threw down this usurper, and took his throne. It was given authority over all things because of his work on the cross. And as a result of that, there's all kinds of good news, all kinds of things that flow into our lives, including rescue from judgment uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff. What else? What, what's the, what, what are the goodies, the bennies of the fact that Jesus became king through his death and resurrection on the cross? Death and cross and resurrection. All right, so we're saved. We're rescued. The, the wrath, the judgment that's opposed to us has is, is been atoned. Even though we sinned. Right, despite all of our badness. What else? All right, so we're not left alone. The Spirit of God lives in us. We'll come back to that too. That's important. The Spirit of God lives in us. We're, we're guided. We're empowered. What else? Eternal life. We get to live forever. That wasn't going to happen. What a, what a, that's extraordinary. Then in a trillion years... You're still going to be experiencing the benefit of this. That's that's exceptional. What else? Anything else? A relationship. Right. So he. So so it's not just that we get a bunch of stuff, but we get him. The sweetness, the blessing, the benefit of the gospel is that we get him. And in fact, almost maybe everything else, almost everything or absolutely everything else, is to that end. The reason, the good thing about being forgiven is that you get the relationship back, right? If you're in a fight with your wife and she forgives you, but she continues to you know, show you her back, like that's, that's not what we're looking for. We want the forgiveness for the, for the re, to regain the intimacy, the friendship, the connection. And that's what we get in him. And we get it for all of eternity. That's what it means to have eternal life. That we, have, that we enjoy all these things, not for 70 years or 90 years or 100 years, but for a trillion millennia and ever after. It's exceptional, okay? Now, so the good news is he became king. How did he do it? Through his death and resurrection. What do we get? All this bouquet of excellence, but then there's one more thing of the, a part of the gospel message. How do we get it? How does all that he purchased and accomplished become ours? By faith. What an extraordinary thing. All he asks is that we would trust him, right? That we turn from the old kingdom that we were a part of and enter into the new one, and admittance is contingent upon trusting him. Not your Perfect righteousness, not your whatever, whatever, whatever it is, right? That's the gospel message, okay? We did that a couple weeks ago. Then last week, we asked the question, well, how do I know that I get all this? How do I know that I'm in him? How do I know that it's true? And so, we're, what, you guys remember, what book did we look at last week to really, wait, did you say five? The Bible. The Bible, yes, okay, but we could be a little more particular than that. What, what book of the Bible is like our go-to for this question? First John, that's right. So First John was written very clearly, overwhelmingly. First John has a purpose in being written. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And eternal life here is representative of the whole pile of all of it, right? So you can know it. And the, the key, the essence of it all is what? How do we know that we have it? Well, he said, I write these things, but what, what in particular has he said about this? That gives us this assurance. Yeah, Lily? 
Okay, so, so he, he's going to give us three lines of evidence, one of which is we know it by his spirit, which he has given us, right? We're going to double click on that today. What else? How do we know? Fire changed. Okay, there's an actual transformation, right? So there's a theological answer that he gives, but it's, it's borne out in this, in this reality. He simply says, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. By the Word. But how do we know that we have the Son, right? And it's going to be... Because by his spirit. And what, what, are the, what, are the, what are those lines of evidence that he gives? Kat? I was going to say evidence of your faith. Okay. But what, yeah, but he gives us three. It's, it's exactly right. But he gives us three very clear categories of that evidence. How do you know? Um, no, that's more of the that's, that's more of what drives it. But he's, there's something he's going to see. We know, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. Over and over in First John. Faith? Um, that we love one another and we obey. That's it. So he says, we know that we're his because of the fact that we love. I didn't, we didn't used, we used to be a little more selfish, a little more self-absorbed, a little more inward. But in, in Christ, what happens is we tend towards a love of others we wouldn't have loved. He's like, that right there, prove that. That you didn't used to be like that, Faith. Something changed. This is how you know you're his. And through obedience, that you used to be more inclined to just do what you wanted to do. But you have become a more submissive person. You are more inclined to do what he's called you to do. And third one, Lily, is that he's given us his spirit. This is how we know that we're his. And John says, this is how we set our hearts at rest in his presence when our hearts condemn us. When we're like, man, this is a mess. He's like, yeah, I know, yeah, that was bad. That's, you are a mess. However, the big trend, the overarching picture is a movement towards greater love, greater obedience, and greater reality of the spirit of God in you. This is how we know that we're in him. Okay, so far so good? Now, of those three things, and this is where we're going to go, which we're moving into this week, I think obedience makes sense. That's kind of clear. I think love, we know what it looks like to love our neighbors, to love our brothers. That makes sense. But this third one of like, we know it by his spirit, that's super vague to me. It's like, what? I don't, that's not as nearly as operational as the first two. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So today is all about the Holy Spirit, and in particular, the Spirit-filled life. Okay, so let's begin. We're going to build a little bit of base theology here. Who is the Holy Spirit? Let's, you can put anything on the table about him. What do we know about the Holy Spirit? Let's get our, see who we're discussing here. Can you see me now? Thanks, Quig. Okay, comforter. Who said that? Okay, so Catherine, so he is the comforter. What, do you know where you're quoting from or where you're getting that idea? Okay, all right, good. So uh, do you guys know where, where do we get the idea that Jesus is the comforter? What's the, John? Somebody say John. Jesus said he said that. Yeah, are we in a disco quick? What's going on here? <laughs> uh, you're not even touching it? It's just going nutso? Okay. So, all right. So, <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit. He's here. Do you feel him? He's among us. Yeah. Okay. So, if you're going to use a language of the Holy Spirit being the comforter, probably what you're doing is you're quoting. So, uh, John 14 to 17. If you guys want to read about the Holy Spirit, there's probably, you could disagree with me about this if you want, but my guess would be that John 14 to 17 is the richest, what have you done, Quig? It's just ruinous now. People in darkness. Seeing a great light, and then we're plunged back into darkness. Um, so the, yeah, John 14 to 17, that, that jet chunk in there, this is right before Jesus is is crucified and he says all kinds of crazy things in those few chapters but a huge percentage of it is about the Holy Spirit and so it's in that moment that he's basically saying listen I know you're all freaked out because I keep telling you that when we get to Jerusalem I'm going to be killed but I am going to be killed and I'm going to leave but it's for your good that I go away because if I go away then the Holy Spirit's going to come right and so it's in this it's in this passage when he's getting ready to leave and he's telling them but you won't be alone because the Spirit is coming, that we learn all sorts of stuff about the Holy Spirit. So that he's, he's going he's gonna to comfort. He's saying that to a particular people that are a little anxious that like Jesus is about to be killed, which doesn't make any sense. How is he going to get killed? It's all so baffling to them. So there's that. He's a comforter. What else do you know? Okay, so helper. So I think the, 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 sometimes we'll, we'll take the Greek into the English and call it the paraclete, right? And that means helper. That when he comes, he's going to help us. He's going to guide us. Um, there's all sorts of language here in that passage. He'll come, he'll comfort, he'll counsel, he'll help. He's a paraclete, which is not a word you would ever use in normal language. It just means that he's going to help you. Like a paralegal, you hear that he comes alongside para, he's going to be with you. What else do you know about the Holy Spirit? 
What'd you say? He's God. Okay, so this is interesting. So we're, we experience the Holy Spirit as he comes to live in us, but he's, he, didn't, he wasn't born when Jesus died. He, wasn't, he didn't come into being when Jesus left, but for all of eternity, from all of the beginning of time, he has been what we call the third person of the Trinity. And this is just weird and strange. But if he's God, Bob, what are some, what else must be true of him if we say that? Well, he's uh, holy. He's, uh, he's a person. Okay. Let's, okay, let's just take those as two categories. So you, start, you started down a list. And you got as far as holy, right? So all the attributes of God, whatever, when we could add that list, right? He's holy. He is powerful. He is wise. He is kind. Whatever is true, anything that's true of God, is true of the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the deity, all divine attributes are possessed in this person who, point number two that you just said, you made it a point to say is, he is a person. Okay? So sometimes you might find yourself, sometimes with our pronouns, we might, you might say that, you might refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. And that would be an error. He's not a thing. He's a person. He has all, not only does he have all attributes of deity, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, all of that. But he's a person. And people have intellect, emotion, and will. The Holy Spirit's not a force. He's not a thing. He's a person. He has intellect. He thinks. He has emotion. He feels. He is grieved by this. He is delighted by that. He has a will. He acts. He wants things to be a certain way, and he brings them to pass. And so we, we refer to him with personal pronouns because he's, he's a person. It's the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father. That's right. So we're getting creedal here. It's the Lord, the giver of life. He proceed, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. And we probably won't get too deep into this in this moment because I think it'll take us off track. But when we understand the Trinity, there is, there is a relationship among the persons of the Godhead. God the Father we would consider in, in the sense of prime. But he begets the Son and the Son and the Father together from them proceed the Holy Spirit. So he is subordinate to the Father and the Son. And in fact, this gives us a little bit of insight into what is his primary deal. Fetzer, what is, what is the Holy Spirit, what's his favorite thing to do? What is his, what's his essence? I think his favorite thing is to point to Jesus. That's it. Over and over and over again. He never takes the stage. He always, yeah. He's always playing the music. Yep. So the wolf look at Jesus. Fetzer, we were in a Bible study once, and Fetzer said to me, he said, this is, give, give, me, give me your visual illustration. What does the Holy Spirit do? Can you stand up? Do you know what I'm, what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, he, so the Holy Spirit writes Jesus on the blackboard, and then gets behind the blackboard, and just starts pointing to him. This is what he does. He loved, the, the Spirit loves the Son, and his whole life is to point us to the Son, to what we would say that, it's John 16, 14, I think, that the Spirit glorifies the Son. His job is to shine a spotlight on Jesus and say, look at him! Isn't he amazing? Isn't he the greatest? Have you ever beheld anyone so magnificent in all aspects? The Spirit loves to, sh to, to shine praise and adoration and love on the Son. And he does so in all sorts of different ways, but one of the most extraordinary, exceptional ways that he does this is that G Jesus says that he will, he will glorify me, he'll glorify the Son, by taking what is mine and making it known to you. The, one of the primary things that the Spirit does is he wants to glorify Jesus, and he does so by taking all that Jesus said and did and knows and filling our hearts with it. He comes to live in us, to make known to us who, who Jesus really is, and not just known in a sense of like, oh, I read a book about him, but known in the sense of we experience him. He, he comes to us. He is a messenger who comes to us, not just externally, but internally, to fill our hearts with a sense of the supremacy of Christ, all that he is, all that he does, to make us able to live out this life that Jesus has called us to. That's, I mean, there's a, he's probably got a lot going on, but at the center of it all is he lives to glorify the Son, by the way that he makes him manifest in our lives. And that's exceptionally good news. Okay, Catherine. Yes, ma'am. We were studying the book of John. Jesus kept repeating that I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell. I only do what the Father tells me. Yes. And, and he said that in several different ways. And I'm wondering, he was filled with the Spirit, so. Yeah. 
So I'm thinking that that's actually showed us the spirit then by his actions and what he did. See, I mean, I'm getting that. No, that, that's, Catherine, that's super insightful, and it's really important, so I'm glad you brought that up. So we have a tendency to think that because Jesus is also God, also a person, that he's basically cheating all the time, right? He shows up, and he lives a life of a person, but you're like, okay, you're a person, but you're God, and so, like, I mean, it's not really all that fair. But there's a very strong case to be made that when we look at Jesus, well, we're not, we're not, we can look at him through the lens of, well, he's God, check, check, right? But really what you're seeing is a human being who is perfectly submitted to the Father, who is absolutely filled by the Spirit and perfectly subordinated to him. And so therefore he's not cheating. He's not just drawing on his inherent divinity, but he's drawing on his, ah, this is going to be heretical. He's drawing on his, I'm not sure if borrowed is quite the word, but his, his, his gifted the, the, the gift of the Spirit gives to him. And therefore, he is much more like us than we tend to think. Does that make sense? So we, we, we see in him not just deity, but we see perfect humanity, indwelt by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, living the life that we're invited to live. Which basically means the difference between us and him is we're, we're more culpable for that than we realize because we have access to the same resources. And, and then it's... Um... Yes. And, and that shows us the same perfect connection. That's right. That's right. And that he did nothing on his own. So. Yeah. I mean, and all this. And, and, and in fact, and this, we've done this before in this class. If you've heard it, you may remember this and it blew your mind then. If not, it'll just be strange to you now. But the, the connection between the Father and the Son is the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the love of God that exists between the Father and the Son. Do you remember doing this in here? And I know it's so weird, but, but um, again, very, very strong case to be made that the love of God and the Spirit of God are treated in the Scriptures as interchangeable things. And that when God puts His Spirit in us, his, the love that exists between the Father and the Son is so rich, so palpable, so absolutely alive that, that it is literally alive and it is a He. And he is the Spirit of God who comes to live in us to bear out the love between the Father and the Son into which you have been invited. You have been invited not just to be alive for all of eternity, but to live in this river of love that exists between the Father and the Son for all of eternity. Yeah, yeah Lewis described, so Mere Christianity, the very end, Lewis talks about this. Augustine talks about this. This has long legs. Edwards develops this intensely. And he, he, not, he, Lewis uses the illustration that sometimes if we're like in a community, you might say, you might have said that, yeah, you know, I love Church of the Holy Spirit. There's a really neat, um, well, it's funny that we call ourselves that, but I love this church. There's a really neat spirit about the place that we name the community that exists one to another. We call it the spirit of the place. And Lewis is like, yeah, well, we, do, well, we might say that, you know, this club has a great spirit about it. But in the, in the Godhead, it's literally actually true. The spirit is the community between the Father and the Son that has, from all eternity, sprung to life and is, is the Spirit of God. And so that connection between the Father and the Son is that, okay? That's strange. If you're like, I don't know what you're talking about now, that's okay. We can talk about it later. But, uh, Bianca, you wanted to say something a minute ago. Well, I just wanted to emphasize the word that you use, which is empowerment. We see that the Spirit gave Jesus empowerment to do the will of the Father in these miraculous, you know, things that occurred. And that those things weren't documented before the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about this. So we're going to talk about empowerment. Let's go back before Jesus. Okay, go back to Ezekiel 36. If you got your Bible, flip back to Ezekiel 36. Now, something is true today that didn't used to be true. Okay, we're going to see, we're going to see this. When in Ezekiel 36, this is one of the, it's just, it's got to be the top 10 most important passages in the, New Te in the Old Testament. 
we call it, it's a new covenant passage. It's where in the Old Testament, Old Testament, um, they were living under a certain rubric. There's a certain rule, a paradigm for how life worked. And God says, I'm going to change the game. We're going to change the rules. And when the rules change, everything's going to be different. There's a couple places this is described. One of them is Jeremiah 31. One is Ezekiel 36. Deuteronomy 30 does the same. But we're just going to go to Ezekiel 36. So if you go to Ezekiel 36, he is basically saying things are going to be different at some point in time. Go to 36, 34. Check this out. Um, uh, 36, uh, yeah, sorry, sorry, uh, what do I want to go? 36, 26. I don't know, I'm, I'm blanking here. 36, yeah, here we go. 36, 26. So go to 36, 26. And he says, uh, we'll, even, we'll even start at verse 24. We've got to get a little bit of a run-up. So this is where, when is this? This is around, what, like 800 B.C. This is early in the game. This is 7-800 B.C. And he says this, I'm going to take you out of the nations. I will gather you back from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your impurities and from all of your idols. You hear this language? It's like, you're going to get cleaned up. Things are going to get better. All the yuck, we're going we're to clean you up. We're going to change you. He's pointing to when Jesus comes. It makes everything better. And then he says, verse 25, I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from your impurities, your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And here's the biggie in verse 27. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Okay? This is the huge, gigantic, enormous promise that you, for hundreds of years, have been telling you to obey, to follow me, to treasure the right things. And it's like, this just doesn't happen day after day. That throughout all of history, we have this inverted set of loves. We love worthy things too little. And we love unworthy things too much. And tomorrow is going to be just the same. Right? This has been going on and on and on. And he says, yeah, but it won't be the same. The day is coming where I'm going to change the rules of the game. And among all the things he's going to do is I'm going to put my spirit in you. That's capital S. I'm going to put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees. I'm going to change it. I'm going to make it so that you're finally able to do what you haven't been able to do because I'm going to live in you and do it for you. Okay, that's what's going on here. That's the hugeness of the promise. And then after Ezekiel 36, what comes next? Such a good answer. Ezekiel 37, right? And what, what's that about? You guys recognize Ezekiel 37? It's the valley of dry bones. Okay, now I want you to notice this. Ezekiel 37 is a double click on Ezekiel 36. And not just on the entirety of the chapter, but on this spirit of the chapter. This whole concept that I'm going to put my spirit in you. This idea, this is the singular most important thing that he's describing in 36. And we know that because he spends all of 37 talking about that one word, that one event, that one thing. And look at how he does it. So you go into chapter 37. And this is all designed for like dramatic effect. He says, let's see. um, We'll pick it up in verse 3. 37.3. He says, son of man, can these bones live? And I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Like, I don't know. And then he said to me, listen to this, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. Listen to this, this is really important. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, one thing you need to know in Hebrew is the word breath and the word spirit, same word. Ruach, same exact word. And he says twice, the headline is, I'll put my breath in you and you'll live. Then he says, blah, 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 punchline, I'll put my breath in you, my spirit in you. So we're waiting for this to happen. The whole point of this drama is that put my spirit in you, my breath in you, and you'll live. And then it happens, except for how it doesn't happen. Verse 7, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. The bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and the skin covered them. But, but what? No breath. So we've gone from having a bunch of dry bones to a bunch of corpses. Big friggin' deal, right? 
And so you're there, you're waiting to see this thing come to life, and then it's like a dead body. And there's a dramatic pause, because who cares about that? And then it says, verse, verse 9, there was no breath in them. Then I said to them, prophesy. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Again, every time you see breath, it's spirit. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, finally at last. And they came to life and stood upon their feet, a vast army. And then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy to them, prophesy to them and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. And you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you out for them. Verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. And then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. I have done it, declares the Lord. You guys, this is the great promise is that the day is coming and for us has now come where God would begin to live inside of us. He used to live in a temple. You are the temple. We are the temple. And he's come to live in us. This singular sweet promise of the gospel is, is dramatically under-experienced, under-appreciated. It is the source of so much goodness in our lives that the Spirit of God has come to live in us, okay? So now you need two terms, okay? And we're going to come back to Bianca's comment about empowerment in a second. Two words I want you to think of in your brain. There is indwelt and there is filled, okay? Indwelt and filled, indwelt and filled. What does it mean that the Spirit of God indwells believers? What does that mean? Okay, he lives in us. Okay, so we hear he, he lives in us. He does live among us, but it's even a little bit better than that because he's not just near us, but he's, he's in us. The Spirit of God lives in us. Do, so here's a quick question. Does the Spirit of God indwell all believers? Yes. Yes. Anybody want to disagree? Okay, good, because it's true. All right, so the Spirit of God indwells all believers. However, this is different. This is distinct from the Spirit of God filling all believers. So what, what does filling mean? This is the New Testament's favorite term for this, that he will fill us. So what does that mean, to fill? Yeah, Jennifer? If you fill something, you, everything else is gone. Okay, great. So it's going to drive out other stuff. That's actually an excellent comment. He fills us in, in a way that he's going to, like, drive out the rest. What else is in? Overflow every once in a while. Okay, so things that are full. If I had a full cup of water and you bump me, what's going to happen? It's going to spill. It's going to overflow. So, right, so the sense of filling suggests that there's an abundance, an excess of. That's great. What's filling? Also takes time to fill something. Yeah, okay, that's actually a great point. So our lives, like, you know, you got to blow up this balloon. It's going to be a little bit of work here. And in our lives, it's not necessarily that it's like, boom, it's there. But that we, as we, well, we'll talk about what happens. But as we yield to him, we fill more, we're filled more of him. That's a great observation. Uh, that it takes time to fill things, right? So you've got to blow up the balloon. You've got to yield the, the sail, as, we, as we'll say. Tommy? That implies uh, completeness. Yes. Uh, right, so what we're, what, it's not like I'm half full. Like when it's talking like optimism, pessimism game, like you're full full. To be filled is to be at capacity and overflowing, and that's excellent. Okay, one more, Catherine? Somehow power. Okay, and we're, we'll come, okay, the power, we're going to come to the power. So this, is, this is where we're driving. This is absolutely true. It's really important. So here's the thing. Are all Christians indwelt by the Spirit of God? Yes. Are all Christians filled with the Spirit of God? No. Bummer, but true, okay? We used to use an illustration all the time in, in Campus Crusade to kind of like illustrate the difference here. Um, so if I had a glass of milk, right? Here's my glass of milk. It's a big glass apparently. And I squeeze some Hershey's syrup into the glass. Okay? Is the glass or is the, is the milk indwelt by the spirit? Okay? What's that? By the syrup. Oh, spirit? Oh, okay. So, the, yeah, is it indwelt by the chocolate Hershey's syrup, right? Um, it is. But what happens if you take a sip of that milk? It's sweet. It's milk. It's milk with sludge in the bottom, right? So if you, want to, if you want to turn milk with sludge in the bottom into chocolate milk, what do you have to do? Stir up. And now we could say that the 
Now will we say that the milk is filled with the chocolate? Right? So now you take a sip. Now it's going to taste like chocolate milk. And then you, if you leave it alone, it's going to settle all down and you get sludge again. Right? We are like that. When a, when a person becomes a Christian, instantly, no delay, right away, bang, the Spirit of God moves in. In fact, could you prove that biblically? Could you, make a, could you show me one or two passages of Scripture that says that if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you? 1 Corinthians 12, 13 minutes yeah, take a, take a minute. We'll do a, first, first person to come up with a really good answer gets $100 from Quig. <laughs> uh, Ephesians 1.13. Okay, what does it say? Uh, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with Okay, that's good. Now, it's going to say sealed with, so that's a little bit different from indwelt with, but we can get there, so give her 50 bucks, Quig, okay? All right, here's, here's, our, here's our, one more. There's everybody, if you're in Christ. Me in paradise. Okay, today you'd be with me in paradise, but now you got to do some extrapolating to get over to the Spirit, right? You don't have the well, Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. Okay, where's that? I'm asking you. Romans, yeah, <laughs> Ro, Romans 8. That's Romans 8. Look at that one. Romans 8 is, uh, Romans 8 is uh, probably a ground zero text for this. So go to, let's see, uh, uh, is it, what is it, verse 9 you say? Uh, yeah, so 8, 9. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit of God, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And here it is. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. Right? So there's a very clear relationship. If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God is in you. Yeah, Pete? Peter preaching to Cornelius. The Spirit entered that household before Okay, excellent. So you can see it happening in the, as, the, as the book of Acts is playing out. You can see as the gospel spreads, when people come to Christ, there's a very clear correlation. You come to Christ and the Spirit of God indwells them. Absolutely the case. Now, but here's the thing. We're all indwelt. If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. But he might be, forgive this, but he might be the chocolate on the bottom of the glass, right? Is he permeating you? And this is where the New Testament uses slightly different language. It's not just that we're indwelt by the Spirit, but we can be and intermittently are filled with the Spirit. And what I find is the most helpful, we can, we can talk about chocolate milk, we can do lots of things, but you've, you've heard me say this, but I'm not apologetic to say it again, is that the, the best illustration I've ever heard for this is that of a sail in a sailboat, okay? Think of yourself as being like a sail. Your life is this, is this chunk of canvas, right? When the sail is filled with wind, what happens to it? What is it? Okay, the boat's going to go. So the, that, the sail will get taut, right? Boom. And you can see it snap up. Boom. Otherwise, it's just kind of listless. If it's filled with wind, it's going to get tight. It's, gonna, it's yielded to the wind. Whatever the wind is doing, it's going to do. And it's going to impart two things. What are the two things that wind gives to a sailboat? Speed and direction, power and direction. It's a vector, right? It's these two aspects. And, and so it is with us that as the Spirit fills our lives, like wind fills a sail, so He gives to us, this is where I want you to go, this direction, and this is how you're going to get there. Here's the power and the speed. So the Spirit of God gives His people power and direction in the same way that wind gives a sail power and direction. All right? Yeah, Ellen. Here in John 4, 36, um, it states, And he that reapeth receiveth wages. No, that's not. Yeah, that is. And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he and that soweth, that he that repeateth may rejoice together. So that tells you he's there with you. Ye yes, I'm not sure how that's relevant to this though right now, so I'm not, I don't I don't catch yeah, the connection. Okay, so yes, yeah, so he, certainly he gives us eternal life. A that's absolutely true. You have to work for it. And, well, see, it says receiveth wages, so meaning it's a gift. Yeah, yeah absolutely true. 100 percent, eternal life is a gift uh, for sure. Yeah, Lily. Um, Tommy said that uh, also the wind enables the sail to fulfill its purpose. That's right. That's right. Yeah, otherwise you're just sitting there, it's no, it's no good. So as the Spirit fills us, gives us power and direction, sends us to where He wants to go, it is the purpose for which, it was, for which we were made. Okay? Now here's the problem. Um, this is meant to be the normal Christian life. 
This is what it's supposed to be, that we should see that our normal everyday experience is that we are given power and direction by the Spirit of God. And Paul talks about this phenomena in 1 Corinthians. So if you have, if you got your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians. And we're going to just kind of go to the opening chapters here. Let's see. One co. And we're going to be kind of dripping into chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1. Yeah. Uh, or am I wrong? Is it 2 and 3? Yeah, chapter 2. We're going to start in 2, actually. Sorry. So in chapter 2, Paul is going to kind of, he's basically going to say there's two kinds of people in the world. And I want you to listen to this because this is, this, is, this is so incredibly important. He says, we'll, sh- we'll start in chapter 2, I don't know, we'll start in verse 10, okay? He's describing these things that we can't comprehend, we can't understand. In particular, he's talking about the cross. And he says in verse 10, that God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. All right. Now there's a lot that the spirit is doing for us. Paul's looking at it through the singular lens of our minds, our intellect, what we can know. There's other things that the Spirit's going to change, what we feel, what we do, all sorts of things. But he's just giving us this one slice, this one-dimensional reality that we know, we can know things because the Spirit of God enables us to see it. What that means is that, and you may have seen this happen. Have you ever, have you ever been around somebody who doesn't know Jesus and they read a passage of the Scriptures and it's just total idiocy to them, right? And Don's like, me, right? You've been this. 31 years. I, I read it. It made no sense at all until I found Jesus. Yes. And, the, and, the, and, 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 and your statement is accurate, right? But the causal link is a little bit different. It's not that you found Jesus, it's that the Spirit of God indwelt you, right? But of course they come together, right? And so it's been said that like reading the Bible is like reading somebody else's mail, right? Until it becomes your mail. And then it, everything changes. So you could read this and it's like, this is all, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense. Or I think I get it, but I just get it wrong, right? Okay, so the Spirit comes in and he enables us. He's the, he's the author behind the authors. It's his book. It's his letter. And so when he comes to live in us, we have a new capacity to read and understand what he has said, okay? So the Spirit, so if you have the Spirit, you have this ability to see it and, to make, and it makes sense to you. But there's another, there's another view. There's the opposite view, which is the next verse. Verse 14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgment about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. Okay, so there's two kinds of people in the world. There's those with the Spirit and those without the Spirit. The ones with the Spirit, this clicks, it makes sense. I get it, I see it, and it's changing me. And those without the Spirit, this is just like, this is so stupid, right? Every day, every single day, you, just re- you can read a newspaper article about what absolute idiots Christians are, right? And how they advocate for these things. Like our sexual ethic is so stupid. No matter what, everything we think about to the, from the world's perspective, the things that we value is just so stupid. That's 1 Corinthians 2. Okay? And Paul says there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the man without the Spirit. Oh, I did it over there. The man with the Spirit, and this makes sense. The man without the Spirit, and it doesn't make sense. And this affects how we behave, what we love. Everything has changed. But the problem is that Paul's about to say there's two kinds of people in the world. Without the Spirit, with the Spirit, and then there's you. You freak, mutant, half-breed case. Okay, watch what he says. Brothers... I could not address you. Brothers are Christians. He's talking to believers. He says, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, as mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. Right? Anybody ever had a baby? Yes. Did you give him milk? Like, that was okay, right? Like, Three months old and six months old and nine months old. And I forget when this game changes, but for a long time, milk's the order of the day, right? But have you ever had a three-year-old that could only drink milk? 
They hadn't graduated to like strained peas and, you know, beets or whatever you make them eat. That's what he's saying. He's like, you're, you're drinking milk. You're four years old. You're six years old. You're nine years old. And we've got to like spoon feed you all the baby stuff. What's going on here? He says, I gave you milk, not solid food. If you're still not, you're not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Listen to this line. Are you not acting like mere men? So there's two kinds of people in the world. There's Christians who have the Spirit of God. There's non-Christians who don't. And then there's you. And you're a Christian who acts like a non-Christian. What is the deal? That's what he's saying. What is the deal for you to be? You're like, you're a brother. You're in the club. You're part of the family. But I cannot tell the difference between you and the non-Christian world. You milk-drinking, jealous, quarreling crowd. Like, get your, what is your deal? And his answer is, the deal is, though the Spirit of God dwells in you, He is not filling you. You're not stirring the milk. You're, the sail of your boat is not out. It's not out. It's not available to the wind. It's just all crumpled up in the bottom. And this is probably the single greatest error in, in Christendom is that we forget, or maybe we never knew, that we are sailboats, not rowboats. And the message of Christianity is not row harder, it is yield more. Will you take the sail of your life and cast it out where it can be filled, where whatever he wants you to do, you're just going to do it. You're going to be obedient. You're going to take your whole life and you're going to yield to him so that he can fill you with his power and direction to be the person he made you to be. Kelly Sue. Well, and earlier when you were talking about what does the Holy Spirit do, one of the things that wasn't mentioned in John, in First John says, says that he convicts us. Yes. That's one of the things that the Spirit does in our lives. He convicts us of sin and he reminds us when we're not yielding, when we're crumbling our sail. And that brings about that. Absolutely. And so Kelly's saying that one of the things the Spirit does is that he, uh, he, he enables us to repent. He convicts us of sin. Now, you, we tend to think of this as like a Jiminy Cricket role, you know, like you're conscious. If you're old enough, you know what that means. If not, forget it. But like the idea of like Disney, Disney figures Jiminy Cricket, is it in Pinocchio maybe? Is that where that happens? Uh, as like our conscience that tells us like, dude, you got to knock that off, right? Well, there's no cricket, but there is the Spirit of God who lives in us to be like, Nah, stop that. Don't, don't do that. Right? He glorifies Jesus. Again, he's going to glorify Jesus by making all that he is, making it known to us. And one of the things that made, needs to be made known to us is where our badness or our brokenness is spilling out, where, where that's being made manifest. And so as the Spirit of God convicts us, it produces in us a humility to apologize, to repent. That's like taking your... It would be like this. If we had... No, I don't have a piece of cloth. Anybody have a jacket or something? Um, if you imagine, pretend I've got you know, a big Kelly suit. There you go. Okay, so here's, this is your sail, this is your life, this is you, okay? Now, if we're out on the boat, we're out on the water, and your, your sail is yielded, then it's going to be tight, right? It's going to be filled with, with, with wind, it's going to have power and direction, and it's going to move the boat along. And if you take your life and you're yielded, you're, you're available, you're open, all of his power is there for you. But if you're like, Lord, I yield my life to you, accept my money. Lord, fill me with your power. And Okay, also... The way that I spend my time is on me. But, Lord, yield me. I, I yield to you. I want all your power. All my sex life, shut up about that. And I yield to you. Then this thing is not catching any wind, right? And we do this. We take our lives and we, we refuse to say, I'm, I'm available to go where you want me to go, to say what you want me to say, to do what you want me to do, to give what you want me to give. And repentance is this, where we yield again. And we are able to recapture the wind, the power, the direction that, that drives our lives. What happens, though, is we tend to do this. And then we think, this is not working. I better row harder. But you're not a rowboat. You're a sailboat. And the secret of the Christian life is never row harder. It is only and always yield more. That is the secret of the Spirit-filled life. And that, man, if that were deeply understood and experienced across the church, we'd be a different people. Would we not be a different people, Quig? How many years have you been watching people crumple up their sail and then sometimes row harder? Didn't work. Okay, Jennifer. I grew up on a small community, and we had sailboats. And there's a piece of the sailboat that's 
Sure, yeah. So we, we, we want to, we and that's, again, another aspect of this yielding is that I want to be available. Spirit, what do you want me to do? Okay. Now, a couple things about the Spirit-filled life that are interesting. In the New Testament, the Word of God and the Spirit of God are used in a very peculiar, interchangeable way. You might think of it like an airplane that has two wings. There's the Word of God and there's the Spirit of God. So we, we talked about this when we were studying First Peter, I don't know, a few months ago. Peter talks about that we are born again by the living and enduring Word of God. And indeed we are. But in John 3, it says that we're born again by what? By the Spirit of God. We are born by the Spirit of God in John. We are born by the Word of God in, in Peter. Um, here's another example. Go to do this. Go to Ephesians. Uh, sorry, go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians has a parallel book. We'll look at Ephesians first, and then we'll try to remember what the, what the parallel is. In Ephesians 5, it's got this famous passage about this being filled. He says this. Um, ba, 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 let's just start maybe verse 15. We'll start there. Ephesians 5.15 says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. That's very proverb appropriate since we're in that series. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Okay, now by the way, pop quiz, we're just in 1 Corinthians 2. Understanding what the Lord's will is. What's the secret to understanding the will of God? It's the Spirit of God, right? So his next line is, he says, Don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And this parallel is that if you're filled with wine, then the wine is going to give you the power and direction, right? Your personality changes. You're, 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 you go from maybe perhaps being timid to being emboldened. You got all this kind of energy to go, you know, dance with a lampshade on your head or whatever your thing is, right? He said, yeah, yeah, you can be filled with wine. wine. Wine will shape you. It will direct you. It will empower you to do things you wouldn't otherwise do. But don't do that. Instead, do this. Be filled with the Spirit because this is, where it's, this is how we're going to understand His will. It's because His Spirit is alive in us. Okay, so don't be drunk of wine, instead be filled with the Spirit. Now, with that in your brain, hold that. What's the parallel to Ephesians? Paul wrote another letter, the thought for thought parallels this book. Colossians. So somebody stay there in Ephesians 5, but somebody else go to Colossians. If you were to trace the theme um, of, uh, themes of Ephesians, and you trace the themes of Colossians, what you'll find is the exact same stuff. Just like in Ephesians 5, it starts talking about husbands and wives, children and fathers. You see all that, um, all in that same kind of context. Right after it, he's going to say, or rather, right, right before that, he says this. Verse 15, this is 3.15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. And then here it is. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now, that's 3.16. If you go back real quick, I've got to show you this parallel. If you go back to Ephesians, right after he says, be filled with the Spirit, the next line is, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I, I mentioned the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to tag you. This is where we're at the same spot in the argument. Right, Both books, right before he talks about singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another in the exact same language. In one book he says, be filled with, and in the other book he says, be filled with the Word of God. The Word of God and the Spirit of God. There's a great interchangeability. How about this? What is the Word of God according to Ephesians 6? The sword of the Spirit. Okay. So when we think about, I want the Spirit, I want the wind in my sail. I want his power. I want his direction. What you have to understand, while you don't, you don't control the wind, you don't make the Spirit of God do anything, what you actually have access to in his book, in his word, is all of the fuel that the Spirit uses in your life. If you, you want to be filled with the Spirit, well, yield, right? Be open, be available to obey, to do what he wants to do. But also, you want to be filled with the Spirit, his word is the treasure of it all. It is the sword of the Spirit. And so the more Bible that you are jamming into your head, right? You're in the daily habit of reading the scriptures. You're doing the difficult work to memorize it. You're gathering with people to talk about it. You're just ruminating on it. As you fill your mind with the word of God, you're basically giving fuel to the spirit of God 
to transform your life. And if you don't, if you decide, you know, I'm going to be a spirit-filled Christian and not a word-filled Christian, I don't think that's a thing. I don't think that works, right? The Spirit's going to draw to mind the Scripture that you're loading in. He's going to apply Scripture that you've read. He's going to help you understand it's his book. He loves this thing. He's going to help you understand his word. So never, never mistake. It, it, sometimes we'll di- dichotomize. the spirit Christians and there's Bible Christians. Well, no. They, they play together. Okay, Lily. I was going to say, conversely, not only do we receive the spirit, know the spirit by the words, but we know the word by the spirit. Um, if you think about the New Testament, they were receiving the word actively. Yep. Words, all scripture is breathed out. And I love that verse in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16. Yep. Scripture is breathed out by God. And of course, if you, I, don't, I don't know how the relationship of the Greek to the Hebrew there. Same thing. In, it's the same thing in Greek. Yep. It's the same word, but it's all scripture is it's spirited out by God. And so it's kind of, you can see that relationship between the word and the spirit being so um, one yep. in there. But I think... Like, as people who have what has been a, a completed Bible, and yet the apostles didn't have that, we know that the Holy Spirit is also the spirit of wisdom and revelation, and God is continuing. Yes. So, the Word, and that's the beautiful thing about the Word, is like, God pretty much builds off of that. The Spirit will give you deeper understanding. Amen. You need to seek to hear from both, to know the Word also receive a greater understanding. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, that, yeah, and that word, just like in Hebrew, the same word for spirit and breath. In Greek, it's the same word for spirit and breath. Different words, pneuma instead of ruach. But the, this, this is the theonoustos, right? This, it's, the, it's the God-breathed word. He is the author of it. He is the interpreter of it. He is one that alivens our hearts, that convicts us with it. The Spirit does all these things. And so it's, it's unspeakably important that we would have, that we would yield our lives to the Spirit, because we're not a rowboat, guys. We're a sailboat yield our lives, and avail ourselves of what he's given us in his word. Okay, and Catherine, we've got to stop because it's time to go to church, so sorry. That makes me think of the scripture that says the word is alive and active, and it doesn't return to God without doing what it was sure. to do. So that helps me today. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's all, yeah, they work together. There's no, there's no disunity between the word of God and the spirit of God. Okay, we're done. We'll do it again next week. Go to church.